This is the Lightning Junkies Podcast with your host, Chaz. On this episode of the podcast, we have Rene Picard talking about his blackmail attack. This is another skepticism type episode, very similar to the last episode that we had, Lightning Sucks. This one is 95% less trolly, so I'm hoping you guys will be able to digest it without having to deal with lightning network sucks type stuff on the video itself being distracting there. But I think the show is a really good one. It's very interesting. Another guest where I had a very long conversation before and after, so that means there's just a lot to talk about and a lot to get to. The next episode will not be as focused on the skepticism part, and hopefully we'll have a bit more Lightning Network fun here in the future. Just a couple housekeeping notes. As always, if you want to support the podcast, please visit lightningjunkies.net forward slash support, where you can find the different places to listen to us, to subscribe to us, to leave a review. You can also tip us with Bitcoin and Bitcoin over Lightning on our PTC Pay server, on Strike, on Sphinx. Beyond that, we now have two monthly newsletters, Junkies News Alpha and Cat's Noob Corner. Both names are tentative, but we do have those newsletters. One is more focused on the overarching Lightning Network ecosystem, things that I find interesting, you know, the general pathway of the show, different media that we're releasing. Cat's Noob Corner will be more focused on newbie content and things that the absolute newbie user can sink their teeth into and begin to keeping that active lightning and Bitcoin learning adventure always going, always continuing. That's a big part of our ethos on Lightning Junkies. We want to teach, we want to learn, we want to interchange between those two positions as often as possible. But for now, let's go ahead and jump into this week's show. to go ahead and welcome Renee to the Lightning Junkies podcast. How are you doing today? I'm fine. How are you? Thanks for having me. I'm doing fantastic. Last year, when I went to the uh, Lightning conference, I had met you. You were doing like a little like workshop class thing, kind of just explaining the basics of Lightning. That's where I know you best from. And I think where the listeners might know you best from are just how you're very prolific out there in Lightning land. They might see you on Stack Overflow. They might see you on the Lightning mailing list. You're really out there doing a lot of Lightning things. Is that right? Yeah, I think it's an interesting technology. Once you get involved, I think you have to work on the technology and then you communicate with people. I decided about two years ago that education is missing in this field. So this is one of the reasons why I'm answering a lot of questions on Stack Exchange and I have my YouTube channel and do that stuff. My feeling is that I get a little bit more credit I should because I'm actually not one of the persons who invented the Lightning Network. These are other people, (laughs) but I certainly dived deep into the protocol. Absolutely. And I hear you're even going so far as getting a PhD in routing. Is that right? 
Yeah, I call it pathfinding, though. It's a subtle difference because there's always this criticism that routing is unsolved in Lightning, and it's actually not. We use Omni routing, and Omni routing works quite well. And what we don't know in a good manner is how to find a path which we choose for the onions. So there's a subtle difference between pathfinding and routing. But yes, that being said, the PhD is about pathfinding on the Lightning Network, which is uh, also from a mathematical point of view, a very interesting problem. Okay, so before we launch too much into all those details, do you mind if I take a step back and just generally ask how you got into Bitcoin generally, or was your entrance into Bitcoin along the same time that you entered your interest into Lightning here? That was pretty much the same time. I heard of Bitcoin before, actually extremely early, but I ignored it, as most people did. And then I was working in a data science environment, mostly with problems related to statistics and analyzing data. But as a side project, I was always interested in scaling web architectures. I heard of this problem that blockchains wouldn't scale well. I think in late 2017, early 2018, I heard about the Lightning Network as the designated scaling solution for Bitcoin. That made me a little bit aware of what's going on there. Because how I understand blockchains, I said they can't be skipped. Of course, you can make them a little bit more performant by increasing the block size or decreasing the block time. But the principal way that is described in Satoshi's paper is to store all data in all participating nodes. I mean, that's a principle that means you can't scale this thing. So I was like, okay, and they claim they have a solution. Let's look into this. Then I looked at the Lightning Network. I think I really started looking in March 2018. I thought it was just brilliant. At that time, I was just starting to be self-employed as a data scientist. And I thought, yeah, it doesn't make sense to now look at a new technology because I'm already pretty good at what I'm doing. But whenever I had three minutes, I was looking at the Lightning Network because I just got so fascinated by it. This is how I actually learned about Bitcoin. I just want to take a quick tangent here to ask, you know, you were kind of looking at Lightning as a solution to scaling on Bitcoin, maybe instead of the idea that some of these other blockchains have gone with that you can have infinite scaling on chain. Do you think that concept is divorced from reality or what is your opinion on that? Computer science expert that I talk to has the same intuitive reaction right away that this doesn't work for obvious reasons. And the obvious reasons are Bitcoin and blockchains are designed in a way that all data is sent to every other participant in the network. I mean, this is the core sentence that is in the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper. We solved this problem of having a central authority by sending all transaction data to everybody. Such a system can only be as good as its weakest link. It's very clear that with the sheer amount of financial transactional data that we have, this doesn't work in a network where all data is stored redundantly on every other node. Even if you have some stuff like pruning or U3XO or whatsoever, just the amount of data that has to be sent over the wire will not work. And I mean, especially for something like network bandwidth, things like Moore's law don't really hold because if you want to send data over the ocean, you have to basically pull another cable and installing these cables is quite costly. I would argue that everybody who tells me about on-chain scaling is basically, I mean, trying to sell me something. Gotcha. Okay. When you were first getting into the Lightning Network, what was it specifically that you found interesting or that kind of kept pulling you back in? I think there is a comparison that I also usually make in my slides with the hypertext transfer protocol. And that's the fact that the Lightning Network is basically just a very smart way of using Bitcoin. We negotiate a transaction that spans from a two out of two multi-sig wallet. 
And we exchange signatures for this, but we don't broadcast this transaction unless we really have to. And this is the moment when we force close the channel. So the idea of making a transaction and just not executing the protocol in the way how it was intended, I think is a very smart and nice and neat idea. A very similar thing happened in the hypertext transfer protocol, HTTP, uh, which is a request response protocol. So usually you send a request to the web server and then you get a response back. But nowadays, everybody is used to websites that actually send you data if something new has happened. Many people with Bitcoin are on Twitter and you see new tweets are streaming in. The protocol is actually not supporting this out of the box. And it's also a kind of abuse of protocol how they were able to, to put these kinds of features in. And I always like creative ideas. In that sense, I actually have to go back and say, well, maybe blockchains do scale. Just not in the way how we thought, not in the way of storing more transactions to them, but making more payments, which is a different term. And that works when we create something like these off-chain transactions and the Lightning Network. Okay, so you were kind of getting into the Lightning Network while you were doing your day job on the side there. How did things progress and how did you get further into the subject matter? Well, so what happened is I spent more and more time doing Lightning stuff. Apparently, there isn't too many people who know the Lightning Network protocol very well. And I went to one of the hack days that were organized by FOMO and I was very surprised that I had to consider myself to be an expert. Because up to that point, I have never met any person who owned Bitcoin, at least not knowingly. I never went to any Bitcoin community event. And it was really more like, hey, let's go to Lightning Hack Day and let's look around. Maybe this is interesting because I was so fascinated by the technology. By the end of the Hack Day, I realized, wow, I have learned quite a bit in my little room where I was living at that time. I mean, then, of course, you meet companies and they ask you, hey, you're a consultant. Can you also do this in Lightning? Can you do that? I basically got more and more jobs with respect to the Lightning Network and Bitcoin. So this is how I basically switched my major. Did you end up starting to feel like that this fascinating thing you could really give back to and that maybe you should or something like that? I have been extremely fortunate in my entire life. I had a scholarship that enabled me to study and I had good mentors who helped me in certain things to make decisions in my life. It wasn't even clear that I would go to university and study. In this Bitcoin space, I think I'm pretty known for not being like an Austrian economics guy and being rather like a socialist, to say the bad word. So giving back and contributing to an open source project is for me something very natural. I think there was also this idea that I always had in mind of saying it's so bad that I'm born 20 years too late because it would have been awesome to contribute to the development of the internet and HTTP, which I didn't because, I mean, by the time when I was using it, basically everything was built. Whereas with the Lightning Network, I have the feeling that this could be the core infrastructure that we're going to use in 20 years to make payments on the internet extremely natural. The idea of being able to be on the forefront of technology and contribute to this was just cool to me. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a similar feeling to what a lot of people in Bitcoin and Lightning feel. That's how I feel. That's kind of the reason why I think I generated this podcast and why I wanted to give back there. You're you know, very much into Lightning. You went to the first Lightning Hack Day. You changed your major. Before we go into any of your papers or any of the current stuff you're doing, what do you see as being your future work? Like, what do you see that you're going to be going into here in the future? Um, I have to I have to make one small correction. I went to the second Lightning Hack Day. <laughs> the first Lightning Hack Day, I think, was not really big announced. It was just within the Berlin Bitcoin community. But the second one was announced on Reddit. And yeah, I saw it and then I 
I decided to go there. My, my future is, I mean, currently I'm obviously working on mastering the Lightning Network together with Andreas and Grosby. So we hope we'll be able to publish this book soon and finish writing. I think because I already did so much educational work that I would love to do more educational stuff. I'm currently in discussion with some people to create a massive open online course. The hope would be that it's actually free, like not hosted on Udemy or Udacity or Coursera, but just like really open access openly licensed course where people can do self-learning of course i need to find financing for that and then i mean i joined a university where i'm a researcher currently i mean obviously i'm going to do a little bit more research and try to yeah improve the lightning network as it is when andreas was on the show i had asked him about mastering the lightning network and i kind of asked him how anyone even myself could contribute i think i'm going to ask you the same question as an example, like I want to contribute to the book, but I have no idea where I could start. If I or one of the listeners wanted to contribute, what do you think would be the best way to start? It's always difficult, I have to admit, to contribute to any open source project. It, it sounds so easy, right? I mean, everything is open source. You just read what people are doing and then you obviously understand everything as well as the people who are running it day to day and then you just contribute right so this is the imagination that many people have and the reality is a little bit more frustrating that being said i would still suggest to go to the github repository of mastering the lightning network and what you could do is you could just read the book and give feedback I have hardly had people doing this, actually. I mean, some people gave feedback in the sense of pull requests of saying, hey, there is a typo or there is a comma not at the right place. But so far, I haven't found a person who actually opened an issue and said, well, I read section three and it doesn't make sense to me. Why do you do it in this order? I didn't understand this particular section. You completely lost me, stuff like this. Judging from my personal experience, whenever I read a book, I have these sections. And I would be surprised if when we write a book, we don't have these sections. I mean, of course, I have the two greatest co-authors in the world, but, you know, I mean, communication is just not easy. And obviously, it's also not for everybody. I mean, people could do that. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with similar things. You know, I opened a pull request to the Lightning RFC for Bold 14. And for the first six or eight weeks, I basically received not any feedback. In the last developer meeting on IRC, we discussed it. Now I have some ideas of what people are missing or what people would like. But yeah, it's, it's, it's quite tricky to get people also then interested in your work. For example, we had one situation where somebody was doing some work. But in the back time, we also rewrote the section. And then when this person made the pull request, the project already has moved and it, it didn't make sense anymore. And of course, that's frustrating because you're basically telling the person, hey, all the great work and all the effort that you did was for nothing. I mean, that's that's just how the world works in an open source space. Right. So giving feedback was your thing there. I guess I'm just trying to think of like, I have all this lightning experience in my head. I've been using it very often, like almost every day, practically. Is there any practical knowledge I can put in there or is it just limited to letting, you know, quote unquote, the big boys handle the book? No, 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 it's not. We have an outline of the book that is there. And I think the experience that you're talking about would fit perfectly in the section that, well, which Andreas just starts writing about operating a node. Because, I mean, there are some tools on the web that you might want to use. There is some plugins. There might be some servers, some command line tools, whatever, right? I mean, you, you have some stuff. And if you have practical experience with these things, sure, write it up, right? I mean, people already do this. They write a blog article on their blog. You can do that. 
but maybe you don't want to start a new blog, but maybe you want to contribute a subsection of the book and say, hey, this is what I wrote. Probably if you have this experience, you have something valuable to say. So you can look at this and see where it would fit into the structure. And even if it doesn't, you could still make a, a small issue and a proposal and say, hey, this is what I would like to contribute. This is the outline. Does it make sense for you guys? And then most certainly give you an answer. Maybe not within a day, but we will certainly see it and consider it. Yes. All right. Going on the same topic of the book there, do you see it really being able to bring in a fresh crop of developers and a fresh crop of kind of just curious people that might end up making more apps or other improvements to Lightning itself? Well, I would say if, if that was not the goal, we shouldn't write the book. <laughs> if it really can do that, I don't know. The people who will read the book have to decide that. I cannot speak for them. But what I do know is that certainly people learned about Bitcoin from reading Mastering Bitcoin and got interested into this. So I think when, when you have a new technology, in the beginning, you have those pioneers who have some nerd reasons why they read the source code, why they interact with the technology, even though it's poorly documented. But at a certain point in time, a technology needs to be more mature, needs to be more stable, and then you need teaching resources, educational materials. Yeah, I think a book is a good starting point for people who get interested in this. I hope there will be students who may be interested in cryptography or maybe interested in protocol design who stumble upon the book and read it and might be as fascinated as I am and dive into this. That's my hope, of course. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. Absolutely. Do you think that there's very many developers or very many people involved in Lightning right now, or is the pool pretty small right now? Pretty small, like anything in the world. I would say the most value in most projects is usually created by a handful of people. Of course, there is exceptions to the rule. If you look at a car manufacturer, of course, there is a vast amount of people working in factories uh, in these value chains to like assemble everything together in the assembly lines. But there's really a lot of projects where you are surprised when you look behind it, how few the amount of people is who are actually driving this. That being said, of course, it would always be better if we had more experts and more people driving it. I guess my main thought or concern there is that there's not a lot of developers. There's not a lot of apps out there. You know, there are some good ones out there that I like, but they're not that numerous. There's definitely more Bitcoin apps out there in general and definitely more mainstream whatever apps out there in general, obviously but just not a lot of lightning ones. I definitely hope this book, amongst other things, helps to bring more people in because it just doesn't seem like there's a lot out there at the moment. You know, I sometimes wonder why that is the case. One feeling that I have is the people who are real developers are sometimes a little bit shy in the same way how I was shy. You know, I mean, I almost didn't go to this lightning hectare. And if I didn't, I probably would still just read Reddit and find this technology amazing or read a paper, but I would probably not have been a researcher and not have gone down this way. And uh, I mean, the other thing is also within the industry, there is a lot of skepticism and there is a lot of, I don't know. I mean, people, for example, exchanges, I think Rusty recently released an article of saying exchanges are the enemy of Bitcoin. I have a story where I thought it would be really cool to write a C Lightning plugin that buys one Satoshi, let's say, every minute from an exchange. Apparently, even exchanges who support Lightning can't do that. They can't do orders in this small size because they are afraid of people doing micro-trading. And of course, they have like this entire order book management is a difficult process. 
But of course, if you just want to have this as a service like streaming in money, saving stacking sets, you could do something like that. How many exchanges do not have Lightning enabled? Why not? It's really strange. I mean, if you if you think about this thing, payment channels were originally invented as unidirectional payment channels in a way that Mount Gox wouldn't need to hold all the Bitcoins. And at that time, it would have been easy to release some software that makes it a good user interface so that people can use Mount Gox in this way. Instead, they didn't listen to the developers. They kept the Bitcoins in a custodial way and it leads to the biggest fail in Bitcoin that has ever happened, or at least in the usage of Bitcoin. It's frustrating. It's really just frustrating. And I'm sometimes wondering why the world looks like this. And I do not really have a good answer to that. Yeah, I feel like I have a very unique relationship, not unique, but probably a strange relationship with exchanges because I've worked at two of them. And I feel like I understand why they would not want to touch lightning or not anytime soon beyond the possible UX challenges. I think it takes away a lot for them. They can't do one sat trading because that would crush many of their order matching engines or whatever. One of the exchanges I used to work at, their engine was crushed just with regular trading in 2017. I don't enjoy the thought of exchanges taking on Lightning and trying to do streaming money because it might crush their feeble centralized engines there. I I mean, I understand that trading is a difficult business. I think if they really want to do that, there would be solutions for this, right? I mean, for example, you could offer something like Lightning API endpoint where you basically say, hey, I'm just going into orders. And once you give it out, you basically ask to buy at best price. You're not even setting an amount. You're just trusting that once a Toshi, it can't be too expensive or too cheap. I think there would be solutions to this, right? I'm not claiming this. I'm not saying an exchange has to do this and then Lightning is going to fly. Even just depositing Lightning and withdrawing Lightning, why why is it not there? Sometimes my feeling is that many people in the Bitcoin space just became filthy rich by being in early. And then developers also were like, hey, I have my fair share of Bitcoin now. I don't need to do this anymore. Sometimes my feeling is that there's a lot of legacy software involved and a lot of know-how that has gone away from those exchanges. I understand that running an exchange is probably a difficult task, but their business by the end of the day is trading Bitcoin and trading will certainly increase when more people use it. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I have definitely been trying to find the places where it makes sense to bug people about adding lightning whenever possible. I don't think it's the big exchanges. I think they're going to end up doing it last. That isn't to say that I don't think they're playing with it because the exchange I worked at in 2017 was playing with lightning in 2018, I think, but just didn't tell anyone to try to keep it really under wraps because they know people would take it to the wrong place and assume things too early. I think that's where probably most of them are right now. They're waiting for the numbers to move. And I think primarily the main number they're probably looking at is the capacity, even though that's probably not the best metric to look at overall. I still think they're doing the naive thing here and even doing what some of the Ethereum people are doing and comparing their centralized Ethereum uh, or Bitcoin abstractions on Ethereum with the Lightning Network, which I think is dishonest and stupid. But I still think that Lightning, at the very least, appears tiny and irrelevant. So that's why they're maybe holding off. It's just strange because 
they probably, if they are large, have a good business running, and then it might make sense to also invest in improving the technology. I mean, obviously, I'm not running and maintaining such an exchange. It's always easy to complain, and it's not my field of expertise. But it's just surprising to me that even within the Bitcoin community, Lightning doesn't really spread well. I think it's basically having to bootstrap another kind of, not crazy, but I'll just use crazy here, another crazy technology to people and evangelizing it and convincing them again, essentially. I think it's a lot easier to get people to buy into Lightning if they're already bought into Bitcoin because it's, hey, it's just Bitcoin, but faster, you know, a little bit easier to sell there. But I guess on this show and maybe at the very beginning when I first launched the show, my idea was onboarding newbies and new people to Lightning without onboarding them to Bitcoin specifically, like trying to skip that Bitcoin part and just saying, here's Lightning. It has a much better improved UX over Bitcoin. Do you think that there's any value in that approach or do you think it's maybe the wrong way of going about things? No, I think that's a very good approach. Honestly, I like your work from that perspective. It's just weird. You know, Bitcoin was this thing that apparently, I mean, I wasn't there at that time, but it looks like it didn't need any marketing or selling. And for Lightning, it seems like people have created so much skepticism around this that it's kind of like a touchy topic. If you have done on-chain transactions to send Bitcoin and if you have used the Lightning Network, I heard so many people saying, I never want to go back, including myself. I'm like, why would I ever do on-chain transactions? It doesn't make sense to me, other than opening a payment channel. I would agree with that. Out of all the transactions I do, I think maybe do an on-chain once a month, but I do Lightning probably every day practically, mainly on Fold, uh, call out the Fold there. Kind of going back to what I was saying a couple minutes ago here, just saying that there's not a lot of stuff out there on Lightning. I still think that's one of the bigger places of skepticism. And I'll definitely say that this show is a seat of skepticism, just because I think it's a good thing overall. Responding to Lightning FUD with much intellectually honest discussion and facts as possible, I think, is the best way to go there. But um, going back to what I was saying, there's not a lot of Lightning stuff out there. In the United States, we have Fold. We have a couple other apps out there, Poyo Feed, Bolts Exchange, some other exchange products, etc. Would you say that there's any slam dunk use cases out there for Lightning, or are we still kind of searching right now? Let's not ask this about Lightning. Let's ask this about Bitcoin. How does the situation for Bitcoin look like? Of course, there were payment providers and there's some more shops where you can pay with Bitcoin, but most people are very reluctant to do so because with Bitcoin, the user experience is just bad because you have to wait for confirmations. It's just a mess. Also, you have this exchange rate risk. People, even within the Bitcoin community, constantly think in US dollar. Look at Reddit today. People are happy that Bitcoin is finally moving in its price again. Everybody is like, yay. And, and everybody is like, on the other side, US printed trillions of dollars this year. Yeah, but maybe that's why Bitcoin is rising in price. Maybe nothing has changed. The US dollar is also losing against the euro currently. But everybody is still so focused on US dollar. I think that's one of the crazy things about the Bitcoin industry or the Bitcoin community. Like everybody wants to get rid of the US dollar, but everybody still measures everything in US dollar. I think it's very difficult on that end to lose the connection with that. I've been in Bitcoin on a constant basis since 2013 and probably got 
you know, 10 times serious in the last couple of years. Some portion of my thinking is in sats, but the majority of my thinking is still in dollars just because it's more practical. You know, most of my day-to-day living stuff is in dollars. My rent's in dollars. All my bills are in dollars. The only apps that insist in being in sats are my Lightning or my Bitcoin apps. Besides paying for my VPN, besides using Fold, I generally don't think about things in SATs. So I think it's just incentives there are kind of lacking, I think. This is the problem of any currency in the world. You need people to believe in it and use it as their standard currency. Me as a consultant, usually I call my prices in Bitcoin. And then the first thing that people do is like, that's that many US dollars, right? And like, okay, yeah, fine. But I don't care. This is the price that I call now. Right? If, if I deliver the service in two months from now, that's the price that I negotiated in Bitcoin. That's the amount of Bitcoin I want to have. I can just talk about myself. For me, it's like I try to think in Bitcoin. I guess the only reason that I have a just hard time, it's like when I go to pay rent, they're not going to take Bitcoin. I could try to convince them, but the chances of it are basically zero. I've definitely tried that in the past with other people, and it never went well. I understand these problems. I also, in day-to-day life, use other currencies, but I don't want to. And I would agree with that. I don't want to use dollars anymore. I guess there's just some part of me that has acquiesced, said, fine, fiat's probably staying for at least some period of time. I will maintain this compartmentalized Bitcoin brain, but then just let go of the fiat part and just let it do its thing for now. Getting back to the main topic here, you spent years researching Lightning at this point, and I think the biggest skepticisms lately are these papers that are getting released. I'm seeing a lot of people on Twitter say, oh, there's this paper, therefore Lightning is dead, let's just shut it down. Before we launch into the blackmail one specifically, do you kind of see that out there? Do you get the sense that lightning is dead now because of these attacks and these things that are out there? Or is it just about realizing the trade-offs and finding the solutions to these problems? You mentioned skepticism before, and being a researcher, skepticism is my bread and butter. This is what research builds upon. I don't want to sell lightning to anybody. I just thought it's a cool technology. Nothing more, nothing less. It's amazing how much it can do, but you can also see how many people work on it and how many different ideas come into this and how often some design decisions in Lightning are there where you think, why, by the end of the day. For example, they have this onion routing process, which is extremely cool to hide where payments go and what's happening. Um, but then some, some data about the onions is just sent in the Lightning messages. And you kind of like reveal privacy again. And you'd be like, these are two technologies that are both part of the protocol and they kind of contradict each other. These are, I would say, honest mistakes that happen by developers. I don't want to say that somebody on purpose, there was this heartbeat bug in SSL where people on purpose created some backdoors. I don't think that's what's happening. But it's just very difficult when you design a protocol and when you design a technology to have all unintended side effects on your mind. The Lightning Network in itself is an unintended side effect of the design of Bitcoin, because I'm pretty sure, I've obviously never talked to Satoshi Nakamoto, but I'm pretty sure when Satoshi Nakamoto designed Bitcoin, they didn't have the idea of saying, oh, you can actually withheld a signed transaction and play around with this and create a payment channel in this way. I'm pretty sure that was just never intended. 
by the end of the day, this is all hacking. And it's very natural that these errors get detected. And I personally have a very good feeling about this because what it means is there is actually a group of people who study the Lightning Network heavily. Most of the papers so far that have come out were not surprising to people who do more with the Lightning Network, like things that people kind of knew. But research is not only about revealing effect, but it's also about measuring the effect and maybe also showing ways how to mitigate it. So it's a little bit more difficult to write a research paper than just saying, hey, this is a problem. The fact that people are picking this up, I personally think is a very good thing. I mean, we just talked about adoption and in the research community, the Lightning Network has definitely arrived. Interesting. I wouldn't have thought that was true. I would argue that this is currently kind of like the... I kind of don't want to get quoted on this. But I mean, I, I would still say it. it's kind of like the biggest user base. It's researchers. Not in the sense that they use it to transact and send money back and forth, but in the sense of that they actually study the protocol, that they actually work on this, that they do some stuff. But they're very silently. They're not developers. They're just like once in a while, publish a paper, explain some things. Currently, if I do a related work section, when I write a paper about the Lightning Network, I have to filter papers. There's so many papers published on the Lightning Network that the related work is bigger than the amount of papers that is there. So, so I know more papers about the Lightning Network than I know actually shops that use the Lightning Network. This is what I meant when I say researchers are currently the biggest user base. I would argue that's a very good thing because these are people who definitely understand the protocol. Would you say that it's a good thing in the sense that very intelligent people that have spent a lot of time on this are impressed by it and aren't running away from it kind of thing? Yeah, they take it serious. When you have a new technology, you always need people in the beginning who take the technology serious. In Bitcoin, it was obviously Hall Finney. Satoshi published this on the mailing list. The first person was like, yeah, interesting, but it doesn't scale. I mean, that was a very precise point. I'm not sure if that person actually saw it from that perspective that explicitly. If so, congratulations. But Paul Finney was then the person who said, yeah, I don't care. I like it. Running Bitcoin, right? The famous tree. You need people who actually take a technology serious. When you're a researcher, you have a lot on your plate. To find the time to actually do research about the Lightning Network, I would say in the way how universities and research are funded is rather difficult because usually research is funded around a certain topic and the Lightning Network is nothing where you currently get research funding for. So those people all do this on their side project. I think I'm one of the few people who actually has the Lightning Network as my core topic to do research, which is the only reason why I joined that university. Otherwise, I would not have done this. But that being said, it's amazing to see that people spend their time, which is rare in research, to write an entire paper about this. They wouldn't do this if they wouldn't believe that this technology is interesting enough. If it's not interesting and just has an error, I mean, you find many things where you say, oh, this is an error. It's very interesting that you say that. I've never heard anyone say that this was an interesting research topic other than just people like that are being nerdy on Twitter, I guess. Let's dig a bit deeper into this then. You wrote a paper and put it onto the Lightning Network mailing list fairly recently. Is that right? I discovered this in, I think, July or August last year. And I tried to do a responsible disclosure, which was difficult enough, apparently, because I kind of didn't know how to do this. It's nothing that somebody taught me in the past. This is also a little bit where trust starts. I mean, which Lightning developer can you trust? Can you trust all of them? Who is the person who is responsible for this? It starts to get a little bit awkward. It was a nice experience for me, honestly. Actually, emotionally difficult almost. 
So I made this responsible disclosure. It turned out that Eclair wasn't really a victim of this. In Sea Lightning, I fixed it, and the LND people were kind of like, yeah, we know these kinds of issues exist, and it's not really a big issue kind of attitude. I kept it there for a pretty long time, and I think in the spring, I was like, yeah, I really want to get this out, because I had some clients, I always was talking around this issue, but I kind of didn't want to not tell them. So I had this on my mind that I wanted to write the post on the mailing list anyway. And then the flood and loot paper came out. They basically abused the same problem, but used it for a different attack. But the problem is the same. I was skimming the paper and I was like, yeah, this sounds very familiar to me. I thought it's fair enough to go public, which I did then, yes. Would you be able to explain just the absolute basics of the blackmail HTLC thing here and briefly uh, contrast it with the float and loot? Because I know you said you haven't done too much research on that, but I think you at least know the kind of difference there. Is that right? Yeah, I should, hopefully. <laughs> the HTLC blackmailing thing is, I mean, I hopefully explained it pretty well in the blog post, and it was also referred in the Optech newsletter, which I recommend any developer to read. They always summarize what happened in the last week. It's a pretty good newsletter. The thing is, a Lightning Network payment channel in general works like this. You have a multi-signature output where you and your channel partner control one key. And then you have a transaction that spans from this output, but this transaction usually should not get published. This is the like off-chain part. And usually when you send money back and forth, you update this transaction. We call it a commitment transaction. So the way how this updating process works is by adding additional outputs, which we call HTLCs or hash time lock contracts. These outputs serve two purposes. One purpose is, as I just said, to update the channel state, so move money within one channel. But they can also be used in a chain of commitment transactions across channels to send money from one peer to another. These HTLC outputs, they usually get removed once the payment goes through and the pre-image is exchanged for removing this output. And the protocol is designed in a way that you can have up to 483 HTLCs in a commitment transaction. So every output in a transaction uses some space. And I think the number was chosen so that the commitment transaction would never get bigger than 10 kilobytes. But I mean, 10 kilobytes with one megabyte blocks is already quite large. I mean, you could get 100 of those commitment transactions into a block. So now if you talk about on-chain fees, they are usually paid in Satoshis per byte. Meaning if you have a commitment transaction that is full with HTLCs, the person who has to pay the fees uh, has to pay the fees pays a large price if the commitment transaction goes on chain. And on the Lightning Network, it's always the person who opened the channel. What I would do is, if I wanted to attack you, I would somehow make you open the channel with me. That's a little bit tricky, but let's say you're doing this as a service, for example, where I pay you some Bitcoin for you to open the channel with me. After you open the channel with me, I make sure that the commitment transaction has a lot of HTLCs in it. And then I stop talking to you. The only thing that you can do at some point in time is you have to force close the channel because otherwise you lose, you might lose the HTLCs. Well, and then, and then you pay the fees. <laughs> and then I can blackmail you. I can go to you and say, hey, you have this channel which is not responding anymore. And this is not so surprisingly because... I'm just not talking to you on a protocol level. I'm talking to you on a human level. And on a human level, I tell you, we can resolve this issue very easily. 
now the fees that you're going to pay is 0.15 Bitcoin, almost the entire channel capacity. And it's very easy to do this when there's a fee spike. So the fees in the commitment transaction, they are decided when the HTLCs are being added to it. And when you do this during a time where there's a lot of demand on the blockchain, the fees in the commitment transaction will be very high. So I do this at that point in time, and then I blackmail you. Be like, hey, if you don't want to lose all these fees, maybe we can do something here. Does anything change if the person performing this attack is a miner? Oh, certainly. For the miner, it's even more interesting because the miner could just say, I'm force closing this channel in a block that I will mine, right? I'm not force closing this by publishing this transaction, but I'm force closing this in the blocks that I am producing, that I am mining. And I just put this transaction in because it has the highest and biggest fees. The fees go to the miner, so then the fees actually go to the miner. While I am blackmailing you, I'm not gaining the fees directly. I would only gain them if you agree to my blackmail and we decide to collaboratively close the channel, but you give me more money for it. But if I am the miner, I would actually get the fees. So... That's even nicer. Okay, and let's go down that mining person being the attacker here for a moment. Is there any conflicts with mining incentives? Like, would they be working against themselves by doing these sorts of attacks, or would they align with the incentives in Bitcoin? Well, as I told you, I'm not a Bitcoin person, but a Lightning person. As far as I understand, it wouldn't change anything because miners usually include the transaction that pay the highest fees and commitment transaction in general overpay fees because they never know how fees will be in the future. So if during a fee spike, the commitment transaction uses five times the fees and it's a large transaction, no big deal. Why would the miner not include this transaction if the miner knows it? I would argue the miner is completely incentivized of doing this. What are ways to mitigate the blackmail thing here? That's the problem. There are basically none. I mean, we can try to not use HTLCs, but currently we have to. We can try to change the way how fees are being paid for the commitment transaction, but there's an entire discussion about anchor outputs, RBF pinning, and these kinds of problems because you kind of have to negotiate the fees before the commitment transaction hit the chain. These ideas of RBFing doesn't work in the first place because the other person isn't there anymore. And child pays for parents also doesn't work because of the time locks. So, so this is a little bit tricky. The best mitigation that we currently have is to say, well, you can configure your, your lightning node in a way that your channel doesn't accept 483 HTLCs, which currently nobody needs anyway. Eclair used to have 30 HTLCs as a maximum, deviating from the protocol. Well, not really deviating. The protocol says you can have up to 483 HTLCs. And Eclair always said we don't need that many. And what we did in C-Lightning is we basically programmed in the way to configure it and have the same limit and the default value to be set to 30 and not to 483. And in that sense, the commitment transaction at least is not as big anymore. So you don't lose as many Satoshis. Because, I mean, the more HTLCs you have, the bigger the transaction gets. But that's obviously not very satisfying. Right, right. So I guess that's why I'm going to ask this next question here. I'm going to ask from a very naive place, so excuse me, but is there any way to like replace or otherwise upgrade the design of HTLCs to kind of mitigate this at all? Or is that just asking too much of a big question there? My feeling is when we have Taproot, we can do something with these Merkleized abstract syntax trees where we basically combine HTLCs. There wouldn't be HTLCs anymore because when we have Taproot, we would also use PTLCs. There we could probably 
combine these outputs. It's a little bit tricky though, because the time blocks will be different. And while you can easily add addresses, it's not so clear how you would do this with the time blocks. But my feeling is, yes, there are ways of mitigating this, but we need basically protocol updates. And maybe there's other ways that nobody has found yet. But one reason why I made this article public on the mailing list is I said, here, these are my six ideas. I'm not happy with either of them. And maybe you can extend it or maybe you have another idea. As far as I can tell, nobody has come up with something yet. So yeah, this is where we are. If I may be a bit hyperbolic at this point, is Lightning Network dead? The question is, was it ever alive? <laughs> <laughs> We're still in this phase of, of growing. I would argue that it's, as I said before, a very exciting technology. And I think it's very clear when you design stuff that you discover subtle problems, which most likely will be resolved at some point in time somehow. I don't see that this is necessarily a deal breaker. Should I this if I have Bitcoin on the Lightning Network? One thing is you can, for example, make sure that other people open channels with you because then they pay the fees. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look at my Lightning node, it's hard to discover this. But I would say, except one channel, all channels were opened by other people. Interesting. That's one thing, right? But then recently we had this other CVE in Lightning where when other people open the channel with you, they can steal money from you. <laughs> That's already a year ago and it's fixed. That was actually really just a simple mistake of like not seeing an edge case. You can ask the same question if you have Bitcoins on chain, is it secure? I mean, Bitcoin had CVEs. Stuff can happen. I guess the difference there is with Bitcoin, we at least kind of know some of the complexities out there and some of the issues. And it's relatively easy to kind of put your Bitcoin in a place where it's probably not going to get moved or touched, you know, offline, etc. Really? I'm just wondering, I mean, have you computed your private key at true random, possibly even outside of a computer? From your private key, have you computed and verified your address yourself or have you relied on software? I have probably relied on software, if I'm being honest. And software usually has issues. Right? Even if you have a hardware wallet, there's software on the hardware wallet. Right. Right? Even if the protocol is fine, you don't know. Take Electrum, for example. Electrum was one of the oldest and I would say most popular Bitcoin wallets. And then around 2018-2019, there was this phishing attack on Electrum, which abused the Electrum protocol, and they just installed tons of Electrum servers, sending out wrong data, tricking people into installing fraudulent Electrum wallets. I would argue that people have argued Electrum is out there since 2011. It's a very secure wallet. It's a very good point. You're right. Like I don't sit here going to the farthest depths of paranoid Bitcoinery being a cypherpunk or anything like that. I honestly don't go to that level of detail. I probably go to some moderate level of security and detail there. But yeah, I guess you're right that I don't know if this hardware wallet's going to fail because of some exploit they didn't know was there or anything like that. Yeah, it's you're right. So what I'm saying is, like, I don't want to shame you or the listeners here, but the thing is, I mean, you always hear don't trust verify. I would argue that almost nobody has done this for their private keys. Yes, I would argue the Bitcoin protocol is much less complex than the Lightning Network protocol. And in that sense, it is, it seems more secure. And probably also Bitcoin Core as a software is tested much better than Lightning Network software because more developers looking on it, more interest, more time, whatever, right? All these things. So don't get me wrong here, right? From that perspective, Bitcoin certainly seems more secure than Lightning, in particular, since Bitcoin is part of Lightning. If you have a security issue with Bitcoin, Lightning would just inherit it anyway. 
I'm just saying, even with Bitcoin, stuff can go heavily wrong at places where you just don't expect it. I guess we could keep taking that frame of mind and take it all the way down to like Intel chips and different backdoors and different exploits could be in everything. And like, just looking at my computer right now, I probably have how many different software running. I'm also on a Windows, so everyone's going to shame me about that. You're making a very good point now. I can't, I can't say that about Bitcoin. I can't say that about my Windows machine. I can't say that about almost anything, really. So I guess Lightning is probably the least of my concerns at this point. Given that on Lightning, you have pocket money. <laughs> Even hardware wallets. So, for example, I don't use hardware wallets. I just don't. I think it's ridiculous. Okay. Do you think it's stupid for people that do? <laughs> the best thing is whenever I go to Bitcoin events, there is hardware wallets that are just giving out for free. Oh, well, yeah. That's really stupid. <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay, thank you. <laughs> Trash bin. It's like, why would you ever use this, even on testnet? The point, though, was it's like... Uh... I don't know what I don't know, I guess, is the main point there. And I guess that's probably true for most Bitcoiners or most people into Lightning. They're always going to have blind spots about something in their stack somewhere. Is it worth being paranoid about Lightning when there's like 30 other things underneath that I don't know could go wrong? I mean, I agree, but I wouldn't want to use this as the argument for Lightning. For me, the comparison was just important. Even in Bitcoin, people have these issues and these security problems. But I wouldn't say just because your Bitcoin setup might not be secure, you don't have to care if Lightning is even less secure. I think that would be the wrong line of argument. So I think maybe the advice here is what Roots said previously on Twitter was be very selective of your channel partners. I think that's something that wasn't really clear at the beginning when Lightning was becoming more popular. It's just, here, connect to me. I'll connect to you. Connect, connect, connect all day long. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that seems to have been the wrong way to have gone about things. That is actually one of the things that I find very interesting about the Lightning Network. To some degree, we call it it's a trustless protocol. From the cryptographic point of view, we design it in a way that we don't need to trust our channel partners. We have this penalty mechanism. They can't steal the routing thing. So it seems like you can open your channel with whomever you want. By the end of the day, it doesn't seem so true because there are subtle things that can happen. Even if you just have like an honest load failure and crash or something, you can still go to your channel partner and say, hey, please publish an old state where you get all the Bitcoins and let's split them up again. And of course, your channel partner has to trust you that you don't have a backup and that you can't like revoke him. You can even make an outside contract. You can do whatever you want in such a situation where you actually know your channel partner. Whereas if your channel partner is just a random string on tour, <laughs> then it's just a random string on tour. <laughs> I think it's even true if, let's say, your a channel backup is corrupted or something, and you're just trying to contact the other person to close the channel for you. And I'm looking at my channel list, and I know I could figure out a good portion of these channels just because they have like public names and things like that. But like you're saying, some portion of these just have a string, just have their node key as their name, and that's all the information I have. I had a Casa node previously that I still haven't recovered yet. Jameson might yell at me for that. But there are some portion of those channels that I don't think I'm going to be able to figure out who my counterparty is. That's kind of frustrating. I'm not sure if it's a weakness in Lightning or just a weakness in my initial enthusiasm and exuberance and just I'll connect to everyone and they'll all connect to me. It'll be great. We'll have a party. It's not working out that way, I guess, in the real world. I, for example, have a channel with a person that I personally know, 
and this person has hosted their Lightning node on Amazon. And then at some point in time, they just closed their Amazon instance. So the Lightning node is gone. The channel is still there because, I mean, the channel doesn't close if I don't try to utilize it. And the funny thing is, this person still has most of the balance of the channel on their side. So these Bitcoins are gone. So what I could do actually now is I could see if there was ever a situation where on this channel, most of the Bitcoins were on my side and try to publish an old state. I know that this person will not penalize me. And at least I rescue the Bitcoins. That's very strange situations that Lightning helps to create because of that, you know, helping to create even more lost Bitcoins for the like three or four million that are lost or something. I guess it's very strange because the channels are still there. The agreement is still kind of there, just floating around. The same with my CASA node, like all my channels, except for the ones that I closed myself, but all the other channels are still there. They'll probably be there until the other person closes them in some point in the future. Okay, we're towards the end here of the show, I think. Are there any other things in the Lightning space that you're looking forward to here in the future? L2 gets a lot of attention on the podcast, but there is there anything else that you're looking forward to? There's many interesting things, and I would probably have to name everything at that point in time, because most ideas that are floating around are pretty exciting, I would say. Since I'm on the show, I have to be a little bit selfish here and have to just uh, do the shameless plug of saying vote 14 with the sharing balances with your friends to actually improve the privacy. It's a little bit counterintuitive that when you share information, you actually hide more information with this. But I think that's very exciting. And I really hope that I can convince the developer community that this is a good idea. Could you go into that a bit more? Like, I know you mentioned that before, but like you have so many things that you're doing. Honestly, I can't keep it all in my head at the same time. We published a paper, I think, in February or March this year, where we pretty much at the same time as some people from Imperial College, I think, showed that you can basically reveal the balance of any channel in the Lightning Network by just probing it. Right? You send fake onions and you look where the arrows come back and by that you can reveal how the capacity is split into the balance. This basically means that the amount of Bitcoins that you have on your Lightning node is nothing but public. Maybe it's not public like in a block explorer where you can just like click on an address and see how many outputs are there, but you can basically, within the means of the protocol, easily reveal it. When you do JIT routing, what it does is, whenever you're supposed to forward an onion along a channel where you don't have enough balance, you shortly interrupt the routing process, and then you send out a circular onion where you rebalance your channels, and then you forward the onion, which means that your channels can never be probed, because you always will be able to deliver the maximum payment size. You could say, oh yeah, that's because you have all the money. But if you then probe the channel from the other direction and this person has JIT routing, they can do the same thing. That being said, JIT routing is not only good because it improves the reliability of the routing process, but it's also good because it prevents those probing attacks of channel balances. So it increases the privacy by a lot. What I did is I conducted an experiment where I said, okay, let's assume the Lightning Network currently looks like this. And I do random payments from one person to another. Nowadays, when I do this, I might have to do several retries. And with every retry, I learn some information about some channels because if somebody can't deliver this payment, it means the balance is on the other side and I can measure how much information this leaks. So I did this and I measured this for all nodes and node pairs who could pay each other and measured how much information on average leaks on the Lightning Network. 
And then I compared this to what would happen if everybody just shares their balance with their neighbors so that they can easily do the rebalancing and jet routing. And it turns out that sharing this information proactively just with your neighbors reveals less information in total over the entire network. That's really counterintuitive. When I did this experiment, I actually wanted to show, that was my hypothesis in research, that there's a trade-off between privacy and reliability. I would argue JIT routing is more reliable, but it lacks privacy, where instead it turns out it's more reliable and it decreases the privacy. I was like, wow, this is, this is a really great result. So how is the uptake on this idea then? I would argue that the burden of researchers in general is the stuff that they get interested in is usually a little bit away from what the developers are doing. So the developers recognize this and they look at this and they have some ideas, but they are not excited like with trampoline routings or some ideas that they have as developers that are floating within the space. I have to do a little bit of groundwork of talking to people and explaining this. I hope mentioning it on a podcast like this also helps because you always have these like posts where people are like, what are you excited about? And then you people talking about multipath payments, which from a privacy perspective are a mess from some other perspectives too. I understand why they're very intuitive and easy to understand and why they also have their upsides. I'm not saying that they are just bad in general. I'm just saying they're not as good as they're usually being celebrated. I mean, while it happens that people mention JIT routing, it doesn't happen that often. So doing my groundwork here. <laughs> I definitely remember from last year, the JIT routing hitting the mailing list quite a bit. And that just being in my head, the esoteric research stuff tends to have the hardest time staying in my head just because I don't understand it as well, so it just can't stay on there. That's the general problem, though I have to say that JIT routing is, once you read the paper in these things, it's actually, I would say, not so hard to understand. There is other research that is much harder or much less accessible. And the thing is, I'm still very close to the Lightning developers, so I kind of speak both languages, like what the developers speak and what the researchers speak. There's some research that just makes wild assumptions to the Lightning Network. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of interesting, though. I'm not a researcher. I'm not a developer. But would you say that in your position, you're kind of going into the future of lightning development and like trying to find issues, kind of, not necessarily, but kind of? Is that accurate at all? Yeah, so that's actually interesting. Like my PhD is mainly focused around pathfinding. That's obviously also an issue because pathfinding currently isn't that reliable or at least doesn't have a service level agreement. But the more I'm doing my research, the more I find privacy problems in Lightning or attack vectors, stuff like that. And I think that's just very natural. The better you understand the technology, the more you find its flaws and drawbacks. I think these things will be like side projects or side effects for my research. I guess I'm just kind of interested in the fact that researchers and developers don't talk the same language because I guess my naive sense was, you know, you guys are all technical. You should all speak the same language. Go figure it out. For example, LMD, I think, were the first to implement multipath payments. How does a multipath payment in LMD work? Well, they try the full payment and if it doesn't work, they split the payment in half. And then they try both halves. And if one half works and the other half doesn't work, they split it again. Basically, they're always split in two making the amount smaller and smaller. That sounds like a very reasonable way of doing this. It's very intuitive. Somebody who has some idea of basic algorithms in computer science sees that this is a very reasonable choice. This is what a developer does. I'm looking at their code. I'm like, this split is actually not very healthy for the Lightning Network. As a researcher, I already know about channel rebalancing. And every time you do a multipath payment, you have the chance to rebalance your channels because you want to basically send most of the Bitcoins 
along a channel where you actually have a lot of bitcoins. You don't want to send bitcoins along channels where you don't have enough bitcoins. One part of my last paper was that we found a formula that was basically just a corollary that says this is the optimal split that you can do if you want to do a multipath payment. This formula is very easy to understand. I put it there and they were just like, yeah, well, I don't care. It's, this one works too. It's like, what's the difference? Yours is a little bit more complex than ours. And yes, it is a little bit, but just a tiny little bit. It's, it's strange. I'm hearing that there's just resistance from the developers that are almost, you know, don't take the strong way, but like saying, okay, egghead, we get it. We're going to do our cool stuff over here. We don't need your pie in the sky type stuff over here. Let's take it like this for a moment, okay? Let's just assume it's exactly like that, right? Okay. Wouldn't this be kind of natural? Just imagine yourself being an LND developer. You work on this feature all the time. And you have something, and guess what? If you run your node, it works fair enough. And you're proud, you're happy. And then some smart ass comes around and says, it's great that you did all this work, but see, if you change this formula, it would be even cooler. Wouldn't your natural reaction be a little bit like, you know what? Next time you can develop a lightning network and you can design it however you want. Exactly. <laughs> I'm just saying, this reaction, even if it was exactly that reaction, it seems even a little bit natural to me. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, who's this guy coming in and doing all my work for me? It's like, I'll just do something else then. I don't need to do this. Kind of like that. There is a surprisingly big gap because researchers also are very tech-driven and kind of we gathered knowledge. And then they present this in the way of like, you are doing this wrong. This is the right way of doing this. Here's the proof. <laughs> you're dumb. I mean, they don't write you're dumb, but this is how it can come over. <laughs> Tell me if I'm wrong here. I'm getting the sense that in developer world, there's less of a quote unquote, a need to have schooling. You could be a hacker, you could be a developer and just be a self-taught sort of thing. Whereas an academic, almost by definition, you do need to go to school, you do need to go to university and you need to just have that. I don't want to call it stuffy, but you know, there is a little bit more of a stuffiness there, not on purpose, obviously, but when you're researching things, I think it's just a byproduct of that. Would you call that accurate at all? That maybe they're just a little bit more around the edges kind of thing? I don't know if you have to be like a scholar and very good in like going to university and so on and so forth. I think you can also end up in research very quickly in the same way how you can end up as a hacker very quickly. I might formulate this a little bit different. I would say, contrary to what most people think, research is not about making things work in an extremely good way. Research is about understanding how things work or why things work. So what researchers do is they take something, they dissect it, and they try to understand what is the effect of this, what is the effect of this, and then they try to isolate things, which is ridiculously difficult in the world anyway, because everything is connected. Whereas a hacker is just trying to get something running. And that's also difficult enough because the world is complex enough and so many side effects. The mindset is a little bit different. So would you say it's essentially just the focus? In a kitchen, for example, you might have a cook or you might have someone that's doing the dishwashing, for example. They're, they're all in the kitchen. They're just doing different jobs. Would you say that's more of the analogy there? Yeah, but I wouldn't want to say who is the dishwasher and who is the cook here. <laughs> But yeah, it's exactly. They're just doing two very different jobs, basically. That's pretty much it, yes. We're kind of reaching the end here. A couple of softball questions just for fun here. Do you use Lightning on a more user level? Like, do you use the apps or anything? I certainly have a Lightning wallet and I use it to send and receive payments, yes. Do you have a favorite Lightning app by chance? You mean app like wallet or? More like an actual use case. 
everybody loves Satoshi's place, right? All right, perfect. I'll take that as an answer there. Yes, that was the answer. <laughs> I have noticed when I have more of the tech side on, so someone like you, someone like Rusty, they tend not to use the network themselves as much. Would you say that's accurate? Much more about analyzing things and less about the actual day-to-day usage themselves. I really don't know that. Okay. The main reason why I don't use Lightning too heavily is because not many people use it. So there's just not so many situations where I can use it. Other than that, it's guessing. I don't know what people are doing. I guess I'm just using the data that I'm getting on the podcast. Obviously subjective, obviously a selection bias here. It just seems that the people that are making apps tend to play with the other apps more. And the people that are kind of more on the protocol level, which I would probably say that you're more on that level versus being on the app level, I could be wrong there. It seems like you're focusing on the high level stuff and you tend not to want to play with the toys as much. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I I don't play every lightning game that comes out. (laughs) And I think it's someone like me that isn't, I'm not working on the protocol. I'm not developing anything. I'm just out here learning. It's a bit easier just to get caught up in the weeds of all the toys, all the games, all the different wallets. Like I have six or seven lightning wallets on my phone. I got to, you know, learn all the little details and all the little things there as much as possible. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) See, and you asked before how you can contribute to mastering the lightning network. (laughs) If you have all those wallets running, I mean, (laughs) who but you can't do the comparison? (laughs) I mean, I'm I guess it's just, where do I start? Like, there's so many interesting things just on the app level without even going down to the protocol level. Not to waste too much time here, but I I really like uh, Blue Wallet's L&D Hub, which is like a level on top of Lightning almost that is like an account tool that, for example, I could have my Lightning node that has L&D Hub on top, and then my friends can use it as their own Lightning Network abstraction tool where they don't deal with channels. I deal with channels. They just send Bitcoin to me, essentially, and I just deal with it on the back end, and they don't have to think about any of that stuff. They just think about, I have this much in Bitcoin that I can spend on Lightning. That's like my favorite thing right now. I think we're going to end the show there. I will ask you to let the listeners know about how they can find you on the internet, your Twitter, your GitHub, whatever you want to share, and all that good stuff. Just type in my name in the search engine, Rene Picard, and you probably find my YouTube channel, my Twitter, GitHub, whatever. All right, perfect. I think you have a very unique name there. (laughs) Yeah, the the name helps. You have to spell it correctly, though. (laughs) But I think even there, Google helps. (laughs) His name is not Picard. He is not from Star Trek. Okay, guys? Yeah, it's not Picard. Yes, it's it's a very German way of writing the name. (laughs) We migrated from France. We were refugees. All right. Well, I definitely appreciate you joining me on Lightning Junkies, Rene. Yeah, thanks for having me. Boom. That was the 34th episode of the Latin Junkies podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something. I hope you engaged with your skepticism and question your endless hype and excitement for the Lightning Network. While I'm definitely hyped and I'm definitely excited about Lightning, I try to be as intellectually honest about Lightning Network and try to find all the flaws with Lightning so we can best address them. Beyond all that, I do want to say once again that if you learned anything from this podcast, please consider supporting the show either by, you know, chipping in Bitcoin or Bitcoin over Lightning 
or by letting other people know about the show, subscribing, leaving a review, all that good stuff. You can find out how to do that at lightningjunkies.net forward slash support. Couple other tidbits here where we are going to have a second podcast type show coming soon. It's going to be a continuation of the Jolt series. We just haven't really polished them to the point that we really like them quite yet. So we're going to push back the release of those for a while longer. For now, that's going to be the end of the show. I don't have too much else to say. I'm kind of doing this late at night. I have things to do tomorrow and I want to get some sleep here. So for now, I will see all you beautiful, wonderful, and intellectually honest people on the Lightning Network.